Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. We're remembering the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, um, but we're refocusing the story of redemption through the narrative of Scripture. And so the reason for that is because God's story is a story of redemption. It's, it's a theme that is woven all throughout Scripture, unfolding in people's lives, um, in families, and even as nations um, throughout the millennia. And so we're exploring different stories that we see throughout the Bible that exhibit different aspects of the redemption that we live every day as followers of Jesus. Um, last week, we examined a very familiar story, the prodigal son of the lost son, but we looked at it from a different angle and called it the prodigal father um, from that different perspective. And we talked about God's extravagant love for sinners and how it's compassionate, it's restoring, and it's definitive. And so the big idea of last week's message was that God's extravagant love cannot be earned, but it is freely given. It's something we have to receive and it's given to us even before we ask for it. That's a, an important aspect to understand of God's um, His love and His redemption for us. Well, this week, we're going to be examining a story of redemption that we find in the book of Genesis. It's actually one of the earliest examples that we see of redemption um, with one of the most famous individuals in the entire Bible. His name is Abraham. Any of you have ever heard of Abraham? Pretty sure everybody in the room has heard of Abraham. Today's message is called The Rescue. The Rescue. Are you singing Father Abraham over there? Yeah, so I grew up in the church. Uh, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard Father Abraham had many sons, right? If you've not grown up in the church, you're like, you guys are weird people. Um, <clears throat> so today uh, we're going to be talking about Abraham and this really interesting story that only takes like just maybe a paragraph or two, um, but it really mirrors um, the, the, the central message of the gospel, like of Jesus Christ. So if there's any message in, the, in, in this series that really mirrors Easter and what Jesus you know, came to do and the lengths that he went to um, to redeem us, it's this story, which maybe is unfamiliar to most of you. It's very kind of an obscure passage, just kind of passes right over. So I want to give you a little bit of backstory about who Abraham is and what's going on before we really get into it. We're going to be reading out of Genesis 14 today if you want to open your Bibles to that. But um, Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And ultimately, he's what we would consider to be a prototype of all believers um, because for Christians because of his faith in God's promise um, to ultimately lead to the Messiah. So the whole idea was that what we see is in the beginning that God calls Abraham to travel from this place where he lived, more on that in a few minutes, and says, I'm going to take you to a new land where I'm going to show you and I'm going to give you that land and I'm going to make your offspring be like more than the stars in the sky, more than the, than the sand on the shore and you will be a blessing to all earth. And from that space is the Messiah, where the Messiah, which we know of as Jesus Christ, comes from. Now, in the New Testament, whenever we refer to Abraham, it's always about his faith, about how he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And so the story of Abraham starts with him just believing that God is true to his word and will do what he says he will do, and that, that even against all odds and everything that looks like it's not going to work out, that he trusts God and continues walking down that path. And ultimately, because of that faith, faith, God redeems him, redeems his family, redeems all humanity through Jesus Christ. And so as believers, we, Abraham acts as a prototype for believers in that we just need to believe in order to receive 
that redemption. Um, so Abraham was the patriarch of his family, and in this time was a very important role because that meant that he was responsible for his family, both his immediate family, his wife, any kids that he had, but also his extended family. Anyone who was underneath his umbrella of his family that were traveling with him, he was the one who was in charge of them and making sure to take care of them and their possessions. So not just, um, not just protecting them, but also growing them. The patriarch's responsibility was to expand their possessions, expand their family, and then protect it. Um, they were nomadic. They were a nomadic family called by God to travel from where he was originally from, which is the Ur of the Chaldeans. Say Ur. From the Ur of the Chaldeans, which is modern-day Iraq. Okay, So that's where we first meet Abraham, was in Iraq. And then God says, go to the land that I will show you, which is the land of Canaan, which is now Israel. So they walked or they were on camel, I mean, most of them walked because it was a large group of them, walked all the way from Iraq to Israel, and they were nomadic. So they would kind of move from place to place periodically with a large, growing amount of possessions. And so as the patriarch, Abraham included his, son, his nephew, Lot. And the reason that Lot came along was because Abraham's brother died, which was Lot's dad. And so Abraham brings Lot into the family and says, I will treat you as one of my own, as one of my own sons. And so Lot travels with him and they travel together, Abraham raising his family, Lot raising his family, which meant that they were, you know, shepherds. They had goats and they had sheep and they had all these animals and they were kind of growing them. Well, by the time we get to chapter 14 of Genesis, where we're going to read today, Abraham and Lot have actually separated um, because what had happened was they had grown so large, their families have, their, their flocks of cattle and everything had grown so large that there was only so much space for them both to operate in the same place. And so Abraham comes to Lot and says, hey, we should separate. I still love you. You're still my nephew, but we need to like be living in different parts of the land because there's just not enough room right in this spot for my cattle and your cattle. And then apparently there were some kind of like conflicts with the herdsmen. They were fighting each other, getting angry. Maybe there were injuries. We don't have a lot of details there, but they separated. And so we're going to pick up in Genesis 14. It says that Lot settled in the plain, the same plain as Sodom and Gomorrah. How many of you have heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Another very famous passage of scripture. And what ends up happening is he, he goes down there and it says that, he, that he, he looked out over the plain and saw that it was fertile because the Dead Sea was there. Uh, at this point, it wasn't the Dead Sea yet. It was, just a, like a, it was just like a big sea. It wasn't super salty. And so it was fertile. It was this beautiful land. And he said, I'm going to go there. And so he goes down there. And what happens is he ends up getting caught up in this geopolitical land dispute. And uh, what happened was there were five kings who lived in that plain, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah. And, they, and so every city during this time would have their own king. So they would have a city, they would have a wall around that city, and then there would be a king who lived in it. So when we think of kings in the Bible, we use, tend to hear of empire type kings like Nebuchadnezzar. This is much smaller, right? So they would have like, like a, a city with a wall around it, and then they would have their place where they would live, and they would be the ones in charge of the city and the space just kind of immediately around it. So this region was made up of like five kings. There may have been more, but there were five of them who had at one point been conquered by another king from the Iran area. And his name, I'm going to butcher it. His name was Chedorlaomer. Cheddar, Cheddar, Chedorlaomer. Chedorlaomer of Elam, which is Iran. We're going to call him Cheddar today. So Cheddar at one point had, had, 
had um, conquered, and this was very common, they had conquered an area and forced the kings of that area to pay tribute to them. We see this all the time in history, that one king comes and it's easier for him to let them manage their own place and just kind of set up garrisons of people like military to kind of make sure that they don't rebel or to kind of squash it quickly, but they don't have to physically be present all the time. So this guy goes back to Iran and these five kings have to give tribute, they have to send money and gold and resources back to the king on an annual basis to basically keep him from coming down. And, you know, it's kind of like the mafia, right? Where like you got the guy who comes and the enforcer who takes the money out of the cash register and then he goes back home and now you're allowed to live your life. That's what happened here. Well, at the beginning of chapter 14 in Genesis, these five kings are sick of it and they get tired of it and they rebel against Cheddar. Okay. They rebel against him and Lot finds himself on the losing end with he and all of his household taken captive by King Cheddar of Elam. And so what ends up happening is, is that they all rebel. They say, we're not sending you the money anymore. King Cheddar comes down with three other of his allies and just basically routes all of them and takes everything, you know, takes all the people, plunders, takes Lot and his family, takes people with him, and they all go on heading their way back. And so we're going to pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 14, verse 11, is where we're going to read now. So it says, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. So this is very common, right? They would come, they would conquer something and take the plunder with them. Now they're no longer being the kings of like, hey, I'm just going to let you pay me money to keep you away. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to show you that you shouldn't have messed with me in the first place. So he just destroys stuff and then takes people into slavery. They also, verse 12, took Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom and they went on. Um, So all the remaining army now and the captors, they kind of head back towards the Iran area, which is obviously north, far away from Israel, the area that they were currently in. Verse 13, one of the survivors, so apparently somebody survived and and escaped, came and told uh, Abram the Hebrew, who was not in that immediate area. So you might be wondering, well, why didn't Abram help? Well, it's because he wasn't there and didn't know what was going on. He was actually further to the west inside of what would be normally considered Israel today. And uh, so this guy comes and tells Abram, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Ashol and the brother of Anur, they were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men who were born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. This is not the same Dan as the tribe of Israel, Dan. This, which wouldn't have existed now anyway. It's more near on the eastern side of the Jordan River going up towards, like, up towards Iran. So it pursued them as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus, which we know of Damascus in Syria, right? So it's around that area. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. All right, so what's happening here? is that there's this like this incredible rescue mission that just takes place. Um, you know, Lot finds himself caught up in this in this just political dispute. This war goes on, and then he's just taken, kind of thrown up into it and taken captive. And so, like you've seen in movies, these caravans of people kind of ha- like walking behind, usually chained up. They're kind of walking behind the military um, and being taken to their new, you know, wherever they're going to be living now. Um, we don't know exactly how that was, um, but what happens is Abraham hears about it and chases them down and catches up with them. 
and they do this daring night raid. Like they, they find the, the military group um, clustered in camps and at night and they're sleeping. And so they divide up into, into you know, numbers strategically. And what they would do is they would actually knock over the tents so that the tents would fall on top of the, the men inside the tents. And then they would just, you know, kill them with, with like, uh, like spears and things, right? So that they didn't even have a chance to fight back. So that's how 318 men were able to, to take down an army. That and the fact that they were already war-weary. War, war there were probably many people who were still injured. And, you know, probably the most important individuals had already gone back to Iran. So now what was left is kind of like the, like the ones who were in charge of just, hey, just get these guys back to Iran. We're going home. Like, so, so that's what happened, right? Um, so Abraham and his men defeat the army and they return with Lot and his family, all the spoils and the rest of the people who've been taken captive. And so what I want to do today is I want to just kind of dive into just those like two verses right there, like of what Abraham did. And I think there's some real important, like just like golden nuggets for us that really mirrors the redemptive love of, of God for us and, and what he do, did through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see each passage has like a, each one has like a passage in the New Testament that really mirrors this. So the first one is this. I want to say God uses Lot's rescue to highlight aspects of his redemptive love. And the first one is this. You see committed action. A committed action. In verse 14, it says, When Abram heard that his relatives had been taken prisoner, so he heard something, he recognized that there was a problem, and he assembled his, he assembled his trained men. Now, the Hebrew word there for assembled is yarik. You guys say that? Yarik. Come on, Kylie, you can say it. Yarik. Yarik. Yeah, nice. Now, the word that was translated as assembled, right? Hey, Avengers, assemble! Right? And that's, that's, that's true. But the literal word means to pour out, to empty out, right? So the idea here is that, that Abraham knew that there was something that he had to do and he emptied out, he poured out his entire might, the, the might that he had. That's committed action. Like he didn't just go, well, we'll try and we'll take like five guys along, right? Like he took committed action. He emptied out his entire camp and sent them along to, to do this. Um, he was fully invested in the rescue effort. Now, the reason I, I emphasize that is because in the New Testament, we actually see that that same word or that same concept is used to describe what Jesus did when he came to earth. Now, listen to this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7. It says, Adopt the same attitude as that is Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. In other words, he's up there looking at the world, having a good time being in heaven, right? Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. Instead of considering himself to just say, I'm just going to stay up here. I heard my people on earth need help. They're far from me. They're, they're being destroyed. Their sin is killing them. They, they have no way to be redeemed. Without my action, he takes committed action and empties himself. That's the word that's used there. Like he, he, he strips off his divine right and empties himself and then takes the form of a human being, takes the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of human being. Jesus emptied himself and he was fully committed to what was necessary to rescue us. He was committed to action 
to provide a restored relationship. So we see Abraham empties out his camp and says, we're going to go and rescue my family member. In the same way, we see Jesus does that. He says, I'm going to eliminate my right as God and instead come down and be committed to live on earth with them so that I can provide a way for my kids, the ones that I created, the ones who are restrained, the ones who are held in captivity to sin, the ones who have been taken off as plunder, and I will rescue them. There was committed action there. The second thing that we see about God's redemptive love in the story is not only the committed action, not only the decision, but also the sustained effort in it, right? So we also see in verse 14, it says that they pursued as far as Dan. Like it wasn't like, well, how far away is he? Oh, well, all right, never mind. All right, guys, let's go back home. Like we can't get him. Like that's too far, right? It wasn't like that. There was a sustained effort for Abraham and his men. Like they went and they pursued them as far as Dan. They attacked them in the nighttime. And then while there were people who were running, it says that they pursued them even further as far as Hobah, north of Damascus, even further to finish the task. They went even further. So first, the job was almost done. They rescued them, but there was still more to be done, and they went even further. And I want to give you an idea of how far they went. From where Abraham started in Mamre, right, which I mentioned was not in the same spot of where the battle first took place, and then he had to travel to up to, up to Dan and then up to Damascus. The distance from when Abraham first heard that Lot was taken and then they were fully rescued was 160 miles. That's how far they went. 160 miles, probably on, 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 like, on like horseback or something like that to get there as fast as they possibly can. They traveled as fast as, as fast as they could, 160 miles. There's a sustained effort. Now I want to show how that mirrors in, in the New Testament. That same passage we were reading in Philippians 2, verse 7, it continues. So when he had come... As a man, when Jesus had emptied himself, right? There's the committed action. He took committed action to empty himself. And when he came as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even to the death on a cross. There's like not only the action of I'm going to come down and I'm just going to live a simple life. Jesus lived a committed, sustained effort to redeem us. Not just one and done. Jesus lived on earth for 33 years. Like, can you imagine that? How, how awkward that would be for a God who has a divine knowledge of the cosmos and commanding all things, you know, and his, like, I always imagine him as like a wizard. Like he's just like got this like crazy ability to do things because he's God. He can do whatever he wants, but he emptied himself and brings him down to earth. And he lives in the limitations of human skin, right? And our body. He completely took on the body of a human being, had to live, had to learn how to walk, had to learn how to talk. Like he was a baby, right? He had to, had to learn like when he fell down and skinned his knee, right? He was probably made fun of for his social status because he lived in like Galilee, which is like where like kind of the hillbillies lived, if you will. That's like that sort of space, you know? Like think about all the, the different life experiences he had to go through. It wasn't from a rich family. It was from a poor family, a family who had to work hard for everything that they had. He did this for 33 years living and teaching people. He invested in his life, invested in other people's lives, and he ultimately finished the task that he was sent here for. The sustained effort, that night that he was in, betrayed by his own friend, 
who had spent three years with him. And then when he's taken away as prisoner and he sees his other friend, Peter, one of his best friends, deny him to his, like, to his, like, near his face. He could hear him. Jesus looked at him in the eyes and saw his own disciple, like, like, walk away from him to save his own skin. And then after that, his beard was pulled out. He was slapped in the face. He was beaten mercilessly with rods and whipped and then nailed to a cross. He did all of that. Not only a committed action, but sustained effort, a sustained effort for us. And so we go back to the story of Abraham and we think about like what took place. And I would say not only does the committed action reflect the redemptive story that Jesus has given for us, not only does the committed action and the sustained effort, but there was also great risk, great risk involved. If you think about it for Abraham's perspective, Abraham gathered all of his family's military might and chased down their captors. Like, he didn't leave anything behind. And he attacked at night in a strategic way in order to, to, you know, give them the best chance of success. But he risked his entire family's protection. He risked his own life. He risked the lives of his own men by taking them all to a place and going up against a military might that took out five kings. He could have lost everything, but what ended up happening was he redeemed his nephew. He gave up everything. He risked something great in order to do what he knew was right as the patriarch of the family. His responsibility was to rescue the one who had been taken captive. And so when we think about God and what God did, it's it's hard for me. I've struggled with this throughout my life. Like, what did God really risk? You know, like, like he's God. He doesn't lose things, right? But here, here's what I would say. If we see in 1 first, first Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, there's this verse that shows what God wants, his intention. It says, God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, right? It's a simple little statement right there. We see, but I think it, it, it really it shows us the risk if you look at it from a different way. God's desire is for all to be saved. He wants everyone to be welcomed into his family. He doesn't want anyone to be held captive to sin anymore, to be slaves to their own death and doom. He doesn't want that. God's desire is for all of us to be saved, but he knows that there's a risk. He knows that there's a risk. God gave us a choice. And so he risks his glory. He risks his reputation that we would reject him. He, he, until, up until this point, I mean, when he chose to, when he chose to, to show himself, to reveal himself, he, he, no one knew who he was. He had just perfection. He, he was living in his own glory. But the moment he stepped onto earth and, and revealed himself to Abraham, there were always going to be people who chose to worship other gods instead. And that would break his own heart. Like God's risk that he took was that by sending his own son, that people would abuse his own son and do it for nothing. That those people would, would reject him even though he made a way back for them. There's this incredible risk that, that it's hard for us, I think, as people to say, like, what is he really risking? But to God, God who is holy, a God who is perfect, a God who is, who is great above all things, the one who is matchless, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, like for all of that, to soil his name, to tarnish that name by people who may not even want to acknowledge that he did anything for them is a risk. And he did it anyway. 
He knew that people would reject him. He knew that on the, on the cross that there would be someone who would just be laughing at him. He knew that, that his own son, would, they would be mocking him while he's on the cross. He knew that. And imagine the restraint that it takes to like not just smite down upon those people. How dare you do? I'm doing this for you. Like when I'm a, when I'm a parent, like when I'm a parent and like I do something nice for my kids and they don't even like, like acknowledge it, man, it makes me mad. Like it makes me angry. <laughs> My daughter is in the room. <laughs> like, but it, you know what I mean? So I think about God from his perspective. Like, he knew there was the risk that he would do this, and he's going to have to watch his own son go through all of this, and that there would still be people who would laugh and mock and think they're stupid for even believing in that. Like, that's a risk that he took, but he did it anyway. He did it anyway. He sent his son He knew that this would be the case, and he did it anyway. There's such a great risk for Abraham that we see them mirrored in what Jesus did for us. Maybe no one would have believed. Maybe not a single person would have believed. What a great risk. So God's redeeming love is shown through his committed action, through his sustained effort, continual willingness to do what was necessary, even to the point of death on a cross, which, by the way, in Jewish culture was considered a curse. (laughs) So not only did he get the capital punishment, which is the worst form of punishment they could give in Roman society at the time, because he tortured, but then added bonus, he was stripped naked and put up on the cross and then then was literally, you know, cursed by Jewish law by being on it. And he did that at great risk to himself and his honor and his glory for us. So the big idea of today's message is this is that God has gone to great lengths to rescue his children. Like, that's what this story is about. The story of Abraham rescuing Lot is this tiny little story that we just see that just seems so simple. Okay, like, some kings came, took over, Lot was was taken away, Abraham hears about it, and he runs, conquers them, and brings them all back. Done. Like, that's how fast the story goes. But when you dig into it, you see the redemptive story. Remember I said like God's story is a story of redemption weaved through families and lives and nations, right? Throughout the millennia. And we see all of these stories now that we've been going through that are weaving these different elements of redemption that find their way all the way through Genesis, all the way through Jesus Christ. And every one of them, this is another one, that ultimately that God has gone to great lengths to rescue his children. And so what I want to do now is just um, we're going to pray, and then I'm going to take a few minutes to just talk about how our, what should our response be? What should our response be to God when we recognize the great lengths that he has gone to redeem us? Let's pray. Father, thank you for stories that we see in Scripture that illustrate and mirror the redemptive narrative that is woven throughout all of the Bible. We know that Easter is coming We know that the story of Easter is about the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And that's why we're here today. We are here in this room because of the sacrifice of your son and also his resurrection into new life that allows each one of us, if we just believe like Abraham did in the very beginning, we believe in the power of the cross and the resurrection, that that gives us new life and we are restored to your family. We're redeemed. God, the story of Abraham rescuing his nephew Lot is a small one, a simple one, but it shows the great lengths that you are willing to go to rescue your people. God, you love us. 
I thank you for that. I thank you. I think back to all the times when I was far from you. I look and I see markers of things that I know you were involved. I know that you were a part of it. Um, And I can see like your hand pulling me, trying to rescue me, pulling me back. God, I pray for each one of us right now. Each one of us in the room would have a similar moment right now that we we would remember what it was like before we were rescued. And we would look back now to see Uh, clear moments where you intervened, where you came and you were pulling us and drawing us and calling us and and taking steps to redeem us. And now in our discussion time, we just ask that um, that you would would enlighten our hearts and our minds, open us to hear from you and uh, to just kind of learn something new about about you and about ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.